The final investigator I met with was Dr. Stephen Jones, whose research more than 30 years ago established the so-called AC regimen, doxorubicin cyclophosphamide, which is one of the most utilized adjuvant chemotherapy regimens until the last three years when Dr. Jones reported findings from a U.S. oncology trial comparing AC to a new regimen, TC, or docetaxel cyclophosphamide, which is not associated with cardiomyopathy and acute leukemia. The TC regimen proved to be superior to AC in terms of prevention of recurrence and survival. Dr. Jones began our conversation by reviewing the background to the TC study. This goes back now 11 years ago when we were interested in doing an adjuvant program incorporating the new taxane, docetaxel, or taxotere into a regimen. And we would have probably used docetaxel along with an anthracycline, except that we didn't have the cardiac safety data at that point in time. And there was a little bit of pilot data that Vicente Valero from MD Anderson had done with the TC regimen with docetaxel and cyclophosphamide. Seemed like an active regimen. It was devoid of cardiac toxicity. And so in 1997, we started that trial. It's really been the only one with a non-anthracycline regimen in there and compared it to standard AC. In your own patterns of care study, despite what some of our oncology talking heads say, in your own patterns of care study, AC times 4 has still been a very standard treatment around the country, particularly for women with negative nodes. Up to maybe a couple years ago. Yes. So, you know, when this study was done now, 11 years ago, it certainly was a standard treatment. Totally. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that our view was this would probably be as good as AC, and maybe we could avoid the anthracycline. What it turned out is it's significantly better. It has a 26% relative reduction in recurrence rates, a 31% reduction in the risk of death from cancer. So there's a significant survival advantage. You know, it's a relatively small study, but with seven-year follow-up, we did see the survival advantage. And that's going to be published very shortly in JCO. So the study kind of stands by itself, at least in the HER2 negative world, and has been criticized because it's a single trial. But the fact is it is a single study. It's not my fault someone else didn't do this study. Uh, They didn't, but it is changing practice. And I think with the work that Dennis Slayman and Mike Press have done now with the other non-anthracycline regimen, the Taxotir Carbo Herceptin, the TCH regimen for HER2-positive breast cancer, we're seeing that that is as effective as the anthracycline-based regimen, and it has one-fifth or less of the cardiac toxicity. What about the side effects and toxicity profile, for example, of TC versus AC? If you're going to sit down with a woman and say, okay, here's the risks and potential problems of these two, what would be what you would highlight with the two? Well, I think that all these drugs are going to have some degree of nausea, vomiting, hair loss, vein irritation, that kind of thing. Most of them will require a venous access device. So you're not going to have much difference in that. I think that in our study, when we did compare nausea and vomiting, there was less nausea and vomiting with the TC regimen than there was with the anthracycline. And the late problems appear to be much less as well. So now as we're getting ready to publish this paper, we have four serious fatal 
events that occurred late that are probably related to the treatment. They were all in the anthracycline arm. You know, one woman developed a cardiomyopathy and died of congestive heart failure after being treated with AC. Two of them had bone marrow problems, myelodysplasia or myelofibrosis. And recently, another woman developed acute leukemia 10 years out. Now, whether that's related to the anthracyclines, I don't know. But in fact, you know, all of these have occurred on the AC arm and none of them on the TC arm. And we, we've consistently seen that. And it's interesting because even though those events are pretty uncommon, you know, leukemia, MDS, as well as heart problems, it really seems to affect people's thinking a lot, particularly because a lot of these women are cured, you know, in terms of trying to avoid that. I think that's been a big part of the shift away from these drugs. Well, I can tell you that the oncology nurses get this. I mean, every time I discuss this with oncology nurses present, they get it immediately. They've never really liked anthracyclines. They've done it because it's been the standard. And if they could avoid it, they would do it in a heartbeat. It's interesting. We did a survey a few years ago of breast cancer survivors, and we asked them to sort of grade from a 1 to 10 scale how much of a concern they would have about different types of side effects and toxicities. And, you know, we kind of tried to explain what the situation was. And we found that even if a problem is uncommon, you know, 1% or so, if it's a serious problem, they're actually more worried about that than stuff like hair loss and nausea and vomiting. Is that what you see in your patients? I think increasingly that's what we've seen. And, you know, I think from just a very practical point of view, the nurses are aware that if a regimen has anthracyclines, they have to make sure they have a lot more anti-nausea drugs on board to really try to prevent acute nausea and vomiting as well as delayed nausea and vomiting. So we have that issue. And we have better drugs, but if you had treatment that had less of those side effects, that would be a good thing. All right, well, let's talk about the endocrine side of the equation in the adjuvant setting also. And before we kind of get into the choice of therapy, I'm curious about the issue of estrogen receptor measurement. You mentioned that now the Oncotype is reporting this. They've always measured it, but now they started reporting it. They're reporting HER2. Those are the two markers that we want to see the most. What are your thoughts about quality control and knowing whether or not your patient's estrogen receptor is really accurate? I guess it depends a little bit on who do you trust. We trust our pathologist. We have high volume. Lots of breast cancer comes through our institution. The pathologist, uh, it's a teaching situation. We have pathology fellows and residents. And so they really are very careful in doing it. So I do trust them. But I think, you know, if you don't have that kind of volume, you have to kind of wonder. Patients I see, 70% or so, end up being ER positive. That's pretty good national average. So I don't think we're really missing very many. You know, I hear this issue discussed, and I think a lot of pathologists that have pretty good experience and do a lot of breast pathology and do these tests pretty well, but there are some that don't do it so well, and I think we just don't have, in some places, necessarily the quality control. The idea of getting that wrong is kind of scary. When you think about, for example, endocrine therapy, we have a treatment that's relatively non-toxic that can reduce the recurrence rate. Having a woman's tumor incorrectly considered ER negative or incorrectly considered HER2 negative when they're actually positive and could benefit by therapy, that's a real concern. No, it absolutely is a concern. And I think Craig Allred, who is sort of Mr. Estrogen Receptor, does extremely tight quality control. 
And he gets a group of cases sent to him where they've been called negative where he finds that they're positive. But I think that's a select subset. You know, if I hear about a 90-year-old woman in a tumor board, they say it's low-grade but it's ERPR negative, that's a case I would send to Craig Allred. I'll bet he can find estrogen receptors on that patient just because of the biology and the age and so on. You know, the other thing I've heard people talk about recently that I really wasn't tuned into is the question of, and it sounds kind of crazy, but what day of the week you have your tumor removed and whether or not women who have their breast cancer is removed on Friday have slightly less accurate measures of ER and HER2 because the tissue's not, you know, processed over the weekend the way it would be, say, on a Monday or Tuesday. There was a paper that we found that actually showed that the chance of having an ER-positive tumor was materially less if it was removed on a Friday. This is like from 10 different hospitals. That's interesting. Actually, it was Craig Allred who mentioned it to me. What he said was that even though the tumors get put in formalin, they may not get sliced. So the formalin kind of doesn't get in as equally, and it's not fixed equally. And then you get a sort of specimen variation, and you get the wrong part of the tumor. So I don't know, it kind of made sense. You know, I think what you said is really one of the things. It's unthinkable in this country that we wouldn't know the estrogen receptor status of an invasive breast cancer. And now it's unthinkable we wouldn't know HER2 status, and it's the same issue there. How well is this being tested I go around the country and are talking to oncologists and in their own little hospital, the pathologist will feel that he or she is very competent to do these, might do one a week, but feels they're very competent to do it. And they're reporting HER2 status in 10% of the patients instead of 20 to 25. So just on odds alone, they are probably not doing that test as well as it can be done. Well, let's talk a little bit about those specific modalities in the adjuvant setting, first starting out with hormonal therapy. What's new? I'm not sure we're any smarter on how to do this, but I think in my own practice, I really think about treating these women for a very prolonged period of time if they're high risk. And high risk, in my mind, is anybody with a cancer of two centimeters or greater, or even one positive node or any number of positive nodes. And I'm generally going to treat them at least 10 years. And some of these patients, I see them in my practice that I've given chemotherapy to 15 years ago, had 10 positive nodes or 20 positive nodes, they're still alive and free of cancer, I have to really seriously consider whether I'm going to stop treatment at 10 years or just keep going. And most of the patients are willing to keep going or interested in keep going. And that comes back to the annual risk of recurrence. We see late recurrences in ER positive, and I think treating them makes sense. Some of them will develop resistance at some point. That is something that I think will be an interesting topic because the one trial, I don't know if it's going to be presented or not. If it isn't presented in San Antonio, it'll be presented fairly shortly, is using lapatinib to try to prevent the emergence of endocrine resistance. That's really interesting. I guess one of the things that's happened is, again, we're seeing in our patterns of care studies a pretty significant increase in extending hormonal therapy, particularly the AIs in postmenopausal women. Of course, their trials that are trying to look at that, like the NSABP, the MA-17 study, trying to randomize women who get to five years to either continue or stop. But it seems like people are using therapy longer. I think there's more awareness of the risk of progression or relapse. 
I think in the past we kind of had this idea, yeah, a patient's going to have a cancer relapse at 10 years, but now we're seeing a lot more numbers on that. Can you talk about kind of what we've learned about particularly what's happening in the 5 to 10-year window? I think that we are much more aware of this. And as I think back of my practice over 35 years, when we used to just give, you know, four or five years of tamoxifen, every late recurrence you see essentially is in somebody with ER-positive breast cancer. 10 years, 12 years, 20 years even, they're all hormone receptor positive. And I think we haven't really adequately addressed that. Uh, We have the B33 trial, which used exemestane versus placebo, and the MA17 trial that used letrozole versus placebo. And both of those suggest long-term treatment, at least out to 10 years, is beneficial. And longer than that, we're just not sure. But I think what we have also learned is that in this group of women, that at least half of the recurrences happened between year five and year 15. So you're not out of the woods at five years, and we haven't been treating those patients. And I think sometimes we're just suppressing the ER-positive clone. It sits there, we're not killing it, and that's why some of my patients who are very high risk at year 12 or year 13, year 14, I'm very reluctant to stop treatment. If they want to stop, fine. I mean, there's no data to suggest longer-term treatment. But if they want to keep taking the drug, and usually someone's been on treatment for 14 years and had lots of positives, knows really doesn't want to stop the treatment anyway. You know, I don't have data to support that, but I've had some anecdotes in my practice where I've stopped the treatment at year 12 or so and then had patients have recurrence. They didn't, you know, just sort of slow-growing ER-positive breast cancer was just being suppressed, and then it comes back off treatment. When we talk about having a patient on you know, 10 years of a therapy, the side effects profile and the risk profile really starts to come in even more. I guess in terms of the aromatase inhibitors, which is really mostly what we're talking about here, the two big issues that have been out on the table for a while are bone and arthralgias. What have we learned in the last year or two about those two problems and you know how to ameliorate them? Well, I think let's just talk a little bit about the arthralgias. It happens in a fairly good percentage of patients. You know, the initial reports from trials like the ATAC trial suggest that it was just a small percent, but we weren't very smart in collecting that data. And subsequent prospective collections of data suggest that 20, 30 percent of women have some new joint symptoms. Now, a lot of times it's not too bad. They can kind of put up with it, tends to get better with time. But for some women, it's enough to have them stop the treatment. So this tends to come on early, and it doesn't come on late. So if someone's on a drug like a nastrozole for four years and develops a lot of severe joint pains, that's somebody I probably would send to the rheumatologist. That's probably not an AI-related joint symptoms, and they may have some other disease entity going on. But we also have learned that if you stop the drug, it tends to go away. And then if you alternate the drug, you know, I tend to use exemestane in that situation if they've had either an astrazole or letrozole, and most of the time I can get away with that. Every now and then somebody has this kind of joint symptoms with all the AIs and just doesn't tolerate any of them. And then you've got the option going back to tamoxifen. I'll do that as well. But you've got to be responsive to this issue because I think it is a matter of compliance and whether patients sort of stay on these drugs or not. 
The other issue, bone loss, we have learned a lot about and tends to be fairly steady, at least with drugs like anastrozole or letrozole, perhaps 2% bone loss per year, pretty steady. In the ATAC study, you had 8% or so bone loss by the end of a five-year period. And we've also learned, though, it is a relatively slow process. But in my own practice, you know, if I see bone loss that's increasing, I generally intervene with oral bisphosphonates earlier rather than later, trying to reverse this or at least stop it. And if they don't respond to one, then I usually try another one. What I'd like to be able to do is treat these patients proactively with intravenous bisphosphonates. Insurance companies are having issues with that. And Medicare wants you to get severe osteoporosis and have a report in hand that shows you have osteoporosis. And then you have to have something else along with it, like Barrett's esophagus or some other condition where you're not just being intolerant to oral bisphosphonates in order to really approve it. But, you know, I think the IV bisphosphonates really have made a big difference, like zoledronic acid made a big difference, the ZFAS, the ZOFAS study. These show really almost complete protection against bone loss. And they were generally done every six months. It's probably one dose a year would probably have the same benefit. And then we have the other issue with zoledronic acid is whether it can prevent tumor recurrence at least in younger women are ER positive. In one trial, it's a pretty mature trial. We've seen that. Of course, that was just presented in June at the ASCO meeting as a meeting plenary presentation to the entire meeting. I think it was one of the most exciting clinical research reports that have come out in breast cancer in a long time. The Austrian trial, which, as you say, looked at IV bisphosphonate zoledronic acid, they saw like 35% less recurrences in the women who got the bisphosphonate. So it seems like there's going to be kind of a natural pairing of the AIs with these bisphosphonates, maybe. No, I think so. And that was a premenopausal ER positive group of women. We don't have data on postmenopausal, but right. why shouldn't it work for them? Because it wasn't just preventing bone-only recurrence, maybe it would work for right. ER negative or HER2 positive disease right. as well. So those we need to get more data. And there are other trials that will get us that data. But I thought that was pretty exciting because it was essentially non-toxic treatment. In that study, there was seven doses of our old friend zoledronic acid over a three-year period, and it reduced recurrences by a third. I've heard people say it's very early, but it really wasn't early. It was a five-year follow-up in that trial. It's just that there were very few recurrences, and it also points out the power of hormonal therapy. Because in that group of women, a third of whom who had positive nodes, they did not receive adjuvant chemotherapy. They received only ovarian suppression and then either tamoxifen or anastrozole. And those drugs were equal in the face of ovarian suppression. So it kind of, I think the point is that we kind of forget how powerful a tool that is. You know, in a 40-year-old woman, a couple positive nodes, you may be able to do just as well by doing ovarian suppression, giving her tamoxifen. And then if you add a drug, seven doses of zoledronic acid, you really have a very significant reduction in recurrence rates. And 98% of those women, I think, were alive at five years. Very impressive results. It would be almost impossible to beat those results by throwing in adjuvant chemo. Let's switch over to the other adjuvant issue I wanted to ask you about. You already referred to it, which is the management in the adjuvant setting of the patient with a HER2-positive tumor. And, of course, the trastuzumab trials that started coming out you know, several years ago. Where are we right now with that therapy, and where do you think we're going to be heading 
Well, I think that the initial group of trials have been reported. They involve 10,000 women, very impressive database. They all essentially show the same thing. Right now, a year of adjuvant trastuzumab is the standard treatment has roughly reduced recurrence rates by about 50%. There are a number of issues, and I think, again, we have one trial with has one arm that's a non-anthracycline arm, and all the others are anthracycline-based. But what we've seen is when there's an anthracycline plus trastuzumab, is five to ten times higher rates of congestive heart failure. And to me, that's just unacceptable. I think the non-anthracycline arm here, which is the docetaxel carboplatin trastuzumab arm, is equally active and has much less cardiac toxicity. So why would we even think about exposing these women to anthracycline plus trastuzumab when we get the same outcome and have much less cardiac toxicity? So this is another very controversial area because the other regimens that have anthracycline, it's usually AC followed by a taxane with trastuzumab, are all FDA-approved. They're approved for node-negative, node-positive, Right now, one year of treatment is standard treatment, but I think more and more oncologists are, again, trying to avoid anthracyclines in this setting. And what we've learned from Dennis Slayman's analysis of that trial is there's no added benefit to making sure the patients have received an anthracycline plus trastuzumab. If that arm was significantly better and you need both drugs, then I'd say, okay, we have the cardiac toxicity, let's accept it and go forward. But it wasn't any better. The trastuzumab made the difference or the anthracycline made the difference in a small group of women, but there's no added benefit. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. We do these patterns of care studies where we randomly do surveys of docs in practice. And one thing I've noticed recently it's kind of interesting is that the docs are not doing cardiac monitoring as frequently as that was done in the trial, particularly the docs in practice. So, for example, where in the past or where the standard has been, they're going to get trastuzumab for a year, they get, you know, an echo or a MUGA scan of their heart after the first chemo, if it's AC or if not, before they start. And then the standard was to repeat those tests every three months for a year. And what we're seeing is that after the first one, if it's normal, a lot of docs don't repeat it. Does that surprise you? That surprises me because I think the data are very consistent that you can see these drops. And if you look at it, you see them by quarter. I mean, so there's 10, 15% of the patients who have drops in injection practice sort of happen. The number is about 20% with significant cardiac toxicity, 5% with the AC, and then the other 15%. But that's kind of pretty well distributed throughout the last nine months or so of Herceptin alone. And I think it's important to monitor because if you keep giving the treatment, you really could produce a significant cardiac toxicity. And I certainly would do that. What about the issue of the smaller HER2 positive node negative tumor, for example, under a sonometer? Traditionally, these patients would not get chemotherapy. Now, in the HER2 negative situation, we have the oncotype, which theoretically could be utilized. But what about in the HER2 positive situation? How do we think through these cases that in the past, we thought we were maybe lower risk. It seems like people are rethinking that now. They are, and I think we don't have a lot of data on the natural history. But then you have Dennis Slayman and other people say the fact that they overexpress HER2 is a bad prognostic feature, and these patients are at higher risk for recurrence. So how small is too small to treat? 
thanks to my colleague and one of our other breast chairs in U.S. Oncology Research, Joyce O'Shaughnessy, in this particular phase two study, her TC, we had no lower limit of size. So clinical judgment was what was required. And it's interesting. We've only had eight patients with cancers less than five millimeters. And as you expect, we've had 30 or so between five and 10 millimeters, and then the rest were larger than that. All of the data we have to date are in cancers one centimeter or greater. So now we have a little bit of information on these smaller tumors. And we have very active internet debates in the breast committee of U.S. Oncology Research. Someone had one recently, four millimeter cancer, fish positive, what would you do? And of course, the answers were all over the map. Most people probably wouldn't treat that, but it does come up. It makes you think about it. And uh, at least we have a study where they could have a little bit of chemotherapy and a year of trastuzumab. The other thing I think that we're going to get a lot more information on is how long we should give trastuzumab. So we have the little FinHer study where small numbers of patients receive nine doses of trastuzumab and seem to have about a 50% reduction in recurrence rates, but it's the sample size is too small to be accepted as sort of standard treatment. Standard treatment is one year. The HERA trial looks at two years versus one year. That has not yet been reported. I personally doubt that two will be better than one, but we just don't know. And then some other groups are looking, the Finns, to their credit, are looking at nine doses versus one year. So that'll be very important. And the French are looking at six months versus 12 months. So in the next couple of years, I think we'll get a lot more information about the duration of trastuzumab therapy. I guess the other issue is in these smaller tumors under a sonometer, you know, the concern from a toxicity point of view, particularly if you don't use an anthracycline, is the chemotherapy. And what about the issue of just giving trastuzumab without chemo? Of course, the trials, all the patients got chemo and trastuzumab. What about the possibility of using the trastuzumab without chemo in these lower-risk situations? So as I talk to oncologists around the country, it's probably one of the most common questions I get. And I'm finding oncologists on individual basis sort of making decisions to do this. Now, recently there was somebody where they were a foreign national, and they didn't have insurance or a pay out of pocket for this. So that oncologist actually gave nine doses of Herceptin like the FinHer trial. So we limited the amount of Herceptin because of cost. I've heard other people do this, some who are frequently on your programs, you know, have done it on an individual patient because the patient's older, they don't think it tolerate chemotherapy, the patient refuses chemotherapy, that's another one. Some of the older women, half of whom at least are ER positive, where you could think about an aromatase inhibitor plus trastuzumab. At least with the FinHer data, if a patient received a few months of trastuzumab, I'm a little bit reassured that maybe that's adequate treatment. And we do. If patients drop or they do it for a few months, at least they've had some of the drug that seems to make the big difference in outcome in HER2-positive breast cancer. I want to move on to talk about metastatic breast cancer. And one of the things I want to ask you about is the issue of choice of chemotherapy and sequence of chemotherapy, and also where the anti-VEGF antibody bevacizumab fits in. But first, just to finish out in terms of adjuvant, 
in terms of some of the research questions that are being asked right now in the current adjuvant trials. And one in particular that I wanted to ask you about is a study that really ties into what you were talking before, which is the tic-tac study that now is, I guess, going to become or is becoming the tic-tac-toe study. Can you talk about sort of what the thinking was as that trial was conceptualized and then how it sort of changed as you started to think about bringing in bevacizumab? We've kind of been talking about, I think there are many women today who could be treated without an anthracycline with a very effective adjuvant treatment. But not everybody accepts that, and that's why it's a controversy. And I think there will be people that are going to require the results of a randomized clinical trial before they're absolutely convinced. So U.S. Oncology Research is doing that study. Joanne Blum is the principal investigator. And the plan was for 2,000 patients to be randomized to six cycles of TC or six cycles of TAC. And we made it six rather than four, so there'd be no question that it was an adromycin anthracycline issue, three drugs versus two drugs. These are HER2 negative, where we don't think there's a target for anthracyclines there, but we are checking for TOPO2 protein, TOPO2 gene expression, proliferation, and we'll have slides we can go back and check for other things if someone else suggests here's another marker where patients might benefit from anthracyclines, we'll be able to check for that. That trial is going well. The Sarah Cannon Network has joined us. Some of the UCLA Tory sites have joined us, and we are a little bit over 800 patients into 2,000 patients. Norm Womark and myself have been very interested in trying to introduce bevacizumab into the adjuvant setting with a non-anthracycline regimen. Because if you look at the data that Kathy Miller had at ASCO this year, there appears to be a cardiac toxicity signal with AC, paclitaxel, plus bevacizumab in her pilot adjuvant studies. And it would be nice if you could avoid the anthracycline. So we've had a lot of discussions about this, and what we're trying to work out the details of at the moment is a trial that is going to be called Tic-Tac-Toe. It's certainly easy to remember, and it's going to be TC with Bevacizumab. So it's kind of hard to get that acronym, but I could go through all the discussions we had to get it. But you can get those letters out of it. It's really going to be several pairwise comparisons in that trial, and that trial is going to be done in conjunction. NSABP and U.S. Oncology Research are going to do that study together. We've been working on the details of how to do this and data capture and all those things. And the plan will be for 3,900 patients, 1,300 per treatment arm, to TC, TAC, or TC plus bevacizumab. It'll include high-risk node negative as well as node positive disease. Joanne Blum will remain our principal investigator for our portion, and I don't know that NSCVP has identified a principal investigator yet for their side of this. We will end up with 3,600 HER2 negative patients randomized to two drugs or three drugs, and we will see if the anthracycline is important or not in any subgroup triple negative, rapidly growing, you know, the questions you always kind of get asked. I think it's going to take that to really settle the issue. And it's important to settle it now because a number of the drugs coming along behind potentially might have cardiac toxicity too. So if we can avoid the anthracycline cardiac toxicity with these newer agents, that would be worthwhile. But we really need to know the answer. 
I think it's really exciting. You know, there are several trials now. You mentioned the ECOG study looking at chemo plus or minus bevacizumab. There's an international study, the Beatrice study, looking at that question. And, you know, in lung cancer, they're looking at adjuvant bevacizumab. In colon cancer, they're looking at adjuvant bevacizumab. Can you talk a little bit about exactly how bevacizumab works and what the likelihood or lack of likelihood is that it might be helpful in the adjuvant setting? Well, I'd like to tell you how it works. I'm not sure I know how it works because that's been a very controversial issue in trying to identify markers that predict how it will work. And Kathy Miller and George Sledge just have had a paper where a couple of things may have been suggestive. But I'm not sure it's really definitive yet. And it seems to be a broader effect since a lot of different tumor types respond to bevacizumab. I think what will be interesting is the colon trial that the NSAVP has done. That's included bevacizumab. We haven't seen the results. So that's going to be the first major adjuvant study to be reported. Nonetheless, you know, based upon what ECOG did of looking in first-line metastatic breast cancer of paclitaxel with or without bevacizumab, there was essentially a doubling of the time-to-tumor progression and a doubling of the response rate. And that was a HER2-negative population. So the excitement among the breast oncology community is that this is a very positive trial, and in fact, maybe that would be a beneficial thing to take into the adjuvant setting. So the big intergroup trial at the moment is AC paclitaxel with or without bevacizumab in the adjuvant setting. And, you know, I certainly applaud that effort. I think that's the right trial to do. My only concern is that there seems to be the cardiac toxicity signal, and that's why we wanted to explore a non-anthracycline alternative with bevacizumab in the adjuvant setting. So we will get a lot of data in these adjuvant trials. And of course, safety issues in the adjuvant setting are somewhat different than metastatic disease because a lot of these patients in the adjuvant setting may be cured. You mentioned the colon study, and that one's, I guess, the farthest along. And they actually just reported their data in terms of safety of bevacizumab. And it looked, of course, it was colon and not breast cancer, but It looked like they didn't really see any major sort of red flags. And also, I guess it's important to keep in mind that if these people are going to be receiving therapy for a year from a quality of life point of view, you know, it's an antibody that doesn't seem to interfere that much with quality of life. Yeah, that's you now have feet in multiple arenas like the GI colon cancer arena that the rest of us don't have. So you see that data as well. Yeah, but I think that's sort of been my interpretation. I think this doesn't seem to have all the toxicities that we may have seen with uh, GI malignancies, at least when you use it in breast cancer. You, know, you see some proteinuria and hypertension, and but I think people are getting more comfortable with it. When I kind of talk about bevacizumab to the breast oncologists, they're a little more nervous about this if they haven't used it than the general oncologists who've been using it routinely in colon cancer, lung cancer. They're very comfortable using bevacizumab now. Let's talk a little bit about decision-making in the metastatic setting. And particularly, I think, you know, the hormonal therapy in the ER-positive patients and the therapy in the HER2-positive patients, there's a lot to talk about. But I want to focus more on the HER2-negative situation and the choice of chemotherapy, because that seems to be one area where I see the most debate and difference in how people approach things. How do you think through whether it's a patient who's already gotten hormone therapy, now they're not responding to it, or a patient who's triple negative, who's not going to respond to it? How do you think through the choice of chemotherapy and whether or not you're going to add in bevacizumab? Well, it's interesting. I actually wrote a review article 
on the choices of chemotherapy for metastatic breast cancer. I actually read that incidentally. I was going to say, virtually (laughs) nobody in the whole world has read it. I read it, but it seemed like, you know, it's funny because it was just published, right? It was published in clinical breast cancer. Right. But the thing was, like, so many things are happening right now. I don't know what the lag is between when you send it in and all, but it's just amazing how quickly things are developing. They are, but I think the point was there is no standard treatment in metastatic breast cancer. Right. And it's single agents. You know, there's justification now for anything that you want to do. You can start with any single agent. You can start with combinations if you're a believer in that. Some are, some aren't. Uh, I think that issue has never been resolved. You know, I think that we're entering the era, too, and it's a little bit different than two chemo drugs. The era of taking a chemotherapy agent and putting a biologic with it is generally much better tolerated than if you're adding two chemotherapy drugs together. In all those trials, those have always been a lot more toxic than sort of single-dose drugs until they stop working. And, you know, I think, for example, all the controversy surrounding the FDA approval of bevacizumab reflects as much the fact that there are so many treatment options now for metastatic breast cancer. You know, as creative oncologists, you could easily come up with 9 or 10 or 12 lines of treatment for the patient who's still in pretty good shape. And even though they don't respond to the first line or second line of treatment, they're going to respond to something in that mix with all the drugs that we presently have available. So I think it's going to be very hard going forward to demonstrate a survival difference, first-line metastatic breast cancer, of regimen A versus regimen B. And in fact, you know, there are only 11 trials that show a survival difference in that setting. We've added those up when we reported the TAX-311, and that was when we reported docetaxel versus paclitaxel had a survival difference. But there's only 11 trials out of, what, 2,000, 3,000 that have been done. And I think all those trials with survival difference are really older studies where essentially they almost got no treatment after the first-line treatment. In the TAX-311 study, If they had docetaxel or paclitaxel at the time of progression, very few patients got subsequent treatments. They aren't getting 10 lines of treatment or 8 lines of treatment that are very common these days, particularly for the patients who remain relatively well and who desire further treatment. We're not going to end up with a gold standard in this setting. How do you decide whether or not you're going to use bevacizumab in addition to chemotherapy and, you know, when you're going to use it? Well, I think what we know about bevacizumab at this point, and this is prior to San Antonio 2008, is that it increased the response rate in combination with capecitabine but didn't prolong time to tumor progression. For some patients, that might actually be an advantage. And that was really third-line treatment. And then we know it not only increased the response rate but doubled the time to tumor progression first-line with paclitaxel and also had a benefit in conjunction with docetaxel in the Avado trial. Not as impressive, but there was an effect there. And I think the Avado trial, the Europeans handled this a little bit differently than we do. I think in the ECOG trial, if patients had toxicity from the paclitaxel that was dropped and the bevacizumabs continued. And I'm not sure in the Vado trial that was necessarily done. But having said that, that's kind of what we know at the moment. So should we combine bevacizumab with gemcitabine or with capecitabine or navalbine? I mean, I have no idea. Those trials are being done. All those drugs are being looked at. You know, ribbon one, ribbon two, first line, second line, with and without bevacizumab. So there'll be a lot more information on it. 
I guess I've heard, I think there's going to be a major randomized study in which everybody's going to receive bevacizumab, and the randomization will be between paclitaxel, nabpaclitaxel, and ixabibolone. Any projections on what they're going to see in terms of both efficacy and side effects? I don't know. That's a hard one to predict. But, you know, there's going to be so much more information coming forward on how to combine this. As I said, there are some oncologists who are pretty comfortable using bevacizumab for metastatic breast cancer. Right now, based on the data we'd have, I would try to use it early rather than later because I think that's where we have the data. So I would tend to use it first line. You know, one of the issues which we just have to get settled with bevacizumab, we never settled it with trastuzumab, is whether to continue it while we change the chemo drugs. And we just never, you know, it's 10 years into using trastuzumab in the metastatic setting, and we still don't have a definitive answer. What did you think about the German trial that was presented at ASCO looking at that? Well, I think that the German study got as close as we're probably going to get. It didn't get the adequate numbers of patients they had planned on. But with the numbers of patients they had, it did appear that continuing trastuzumab with, in this case, happened to be capecitabine, was better than just switching the patient to capecitabine alone. So that kind of supports what oncologists have become accustomed to doing, which is continuing the trastuzumab and just changing the chemotherapy drugs. But at some point, they are probably resistance to this. I mean, I might change the chemo drugs two or three times. I certainly would think about using the other approved regimen for HER2 positive. For years, we didn't have anything, but now we have lepatinib or Tycur plus capecitabine. And you can always go back and give a trastuzumab combination later on. But I think it's at least an option for a therapy. And it's the first of several that we're going to have because there are a lot of people working on other agents for HER2-positive breast cancer. I think what ends up happening the most exciting for those patients who have pretty good performance status and have progression, you know, one of the things that's changed over the years is that the bisphosphonates have made these bones rock hard. These patients don't progress in the bone anymore. So in the past, they were having bone fractures and terrible pain. You were hospitalizing them for IV narcotics and for emergency radiotherapy. It's hard to get the radiation oncologist to do emergency radiation therapy, but someone with spine fractures... It was terrible pain. I mean, you really would try to get them to do that. And that just doesn't happen anymore. I mean, it's just, you know, it's really a rare event. So now where you're seeing progression, it's in liver or lung, sometimes in brain. But we have a group of patients who are doing pretty well for a long period of time. We're going to get exposed to many of these drugs. And there's no right sequence here. I think that's the point.